Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello? Hello? <clears throat> Podcast Network Asia. Welcome to She Talks Peace a podcast that highlights the role of women peacebuilders around the world in bringing lasting peace and security to their communities. Eavesdrop into their conversations and get to know their stories. From the Philippines to Malaysia, from Indonesia to Palestine, from Myanmar to the United States, their dreams and their hopes for a world without violence and a world where every woman and girl can be whoever she wants to be. Hosted by Amina Rasul Bernardo, President of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy, and Dina Zaman, a Malaysian journalist and co-founder of Iman Research. This is She Talks Peace. Salam from Manila, everyone. This is Amina Rasul of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy, greeting you from exciting Manila. My partner Dina can't join us. So I have dragged into our conversation my youngest sister. What are youngest sisters for if not to bully? So Salma. Hi, this is Salma Pierre Rasul from the Islamic Legal Studies Program of the University of the Philippines Law Center. Greeting everybody. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good day, wherever you are. And the topic for today is another exciting topic, I think. I mean, uh, Oh, absolutely. It is uh, something to do with democratic institutions, which I know all of you legal luminaries at the College of Law Center are experts uh, about. I mean, we just had our our elections. Malaysia is going to be having their, their elections. So most of the countries of ASEAN uh, have elections, I think. Did you know the right, of course you do, that the right to vote is embodied in three international instruments. So it, the Universal, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and in our 1987 Philippine Constitution. I know that uh, our government is supposed to be governed by these three documents, which also mandate the universality of rights as well as access to public service and the secrecy of votes. But better, it's more, uh, what do you call it, Salma? Uh, in spirit, right? The spirit rather than the letter of the law. Yes, that's absolutely right. It's really pretty good to have a sister who's a lawyer. But you remember, Amina, in your early days while you were still with the cabinet, as a member of the cabinet, our Commission on Human Rights elevated the right to vote as an essential political right. And then this was carried over during Chair Chito Gascon's term. In fact, one of the members of the Commission on Human Rights got appointed to the Commission on Elections. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. Commissioner Gia. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, that's right. It's an important right, I think. But what really bugs me is that in ASEAN, we've got nine member states, states right, mm-hmm. who have elections. With the exception of Brunei, which is a monarchy. Right. It's a monarchy, but laws are not always followed to the letter. And so many violations of human rights are tolerated in many areas. Especially during this time of the pandemic because everybody is closeted in their homes. So there's less reporting if there are any abuses. Yeah. Like what happened in Myanmar. And uh, of the 10 member states, the countries most critical of the Myanmar junta were Malaysia and Indonesia and alongside Singapore and the Philippines. And even Timor-Leste, right, Salma? Yes. Uh, Wants to join ASEAN. That's right. 
well, you know, remember when we were campaigning for the substantive law for the autonomous region? Mm. Members of the Central Committee of MILF went to visit Timor-Leste and Aceh to look at the democratic institutions that they could probably adapt when they were formulating the governance structure for the autonomy. That's true. And yet, now that they are independent, they are now also, well, the government anyway, is uh, sort of veering toward actions that are not really in line with the principles of democracy. Last year, Timor-Leste abstained from a resolution in the UN General Assembly condemning the military regime in Myanmar. Through a lot of criticism, including from Jose Ramos Horta, the former president, who said that the vote was a vote of Shame. And I think the civil society and the non-government organizations all protested against this abstention that was presented by the official delegation from uh, Timor-Leste. Yeah. Well, if you're wondering what's going on in Timor-Leste, they were in luck. Our guest today is Hu Ying Hui, who has worked with the Timor-Leste government and has written about the situation there. Ying Hui is the head and senior lecturer at the Department of International and Strategic Studies, University Malaya. She also leads the university's research group on human rights. Her recent works include Rethinking Human Rights and Peace in the Post-Independence Timor Leste Through Local Perspectives. And she's written this with Antero Benedito de Silva and Therese Nguyen Trifung Tam, published by Macmillan. She's also written The Bercy Movement and Democratization in Malaysia. She has been very active in works related to human rights and democracy in the Southeast Asia region for more than a decade. Welcome, Ying Hui. Thank you very much, uh, Mina and uh, Salma, for having me. Uh, a couple of years ago, I understand you wrote an article exploring the trends and lessons that can be learned from the pandemic in Southeast Asia. But there was focus on politics and human rights. And in your article, you mentioned that in our region, which already, as we all know, does not have a good record with respect to democracy and the observance of human rights, that the pandemic and the health crisis in general has escalated and countries have implemented different versions of pandemic protocols, lockdowns, several approaches, and you voiced your concern over what the respective member states have adopted, especially the authoritarian regimes and that it may have led to suppression of political dissent and was used as a window of opportunity to consolidate their power. I would like to know what led you to look at this aspect of the pandemic and its impact on authority wielded by the military and authoritarian regimes among the member states in Southeast Asia. Yeah, thank you, uh, Salma, for the question. Uh, just now, I heard Amina and Salma, you were talking about the elections yes. before I moving on <laughs> to the COVID, COVID-19. Because you also mentioned Jose Ramos Vota. He will be uh, swinging in as the new president on uh, 20th of May, in fact, because they just had their presidential elections. So that is quite an interesting uh, uh, development back there in um, Timor-Leste. So uh, moving on the the questions uh, by Salma here on the COVID-19. Yeah, because I think uh, I've been doing some research uh, basically focusing on human rights and democracies, also the roles of uh, civil society actors in this region, in the Southeast Asia, including Timor-Leste, 
for several years. And um, when the uh, COVID-19 hits the Southeast Asia, and of course, there have been many writings and uh, commentaries about how all these uh, legislations, the existing or the new legislations to actually um, manage the spread of the COVID-19 uh, they're being introduced by different countries in the Southeast Asia and how has it been giving uh, impacts on the uh, human rights and democracy space that we have? Because as we know, the Southeast Asia is quite an interesting region to look at, that it is not all countries having the same political context, social context and economical context as well. So um, there have been, in the beginning of that, there have been a lot of attentions being put into the success case on uh, Brunei and Singapore. But for the scholars who and the activists who write on human rights and democracy, that then put us in a situation where how we look at the democracies, intertwine of democracies, and also the government uh, management of the COVID-19 here. Because if we only look at the human rights and democracies index or the performance, Brunei and Singapore among the uh, of the lowest ranking. However, in the beginning of that, they have been successfully managing the COVID-19 and receiving a lot of praise on that. Um, nevertheless, there is a room to expand when we look at the civic space on how actually COVID-19 can impact on them in a different ways. So there has been some gaps and also imbalance on looking at the situation before and after. So during uh, the, the COVID-19, if I may, to uh, zoom into Timor-Leste, the interesting things there is that it is a very small country of a 1.3 million population. So they, um, the one of the last Southeast Asian country that actually reported the COVID-19 case. So there had been zero cases being reported when all of us were already on the lockdown and, and many other things. So from the democracy approach, this now we're talking about democratic institutions. So Timor-Leste is known as one of the most democratic countries in the Southeast Asia region. But its index have dropped to the second one after Malaysia because Malaysia experienced a political change in 2018. So they are the second one. However, their ranking are considerably very high when it comes to human rights and uh, democracy. So COVID-19's uh, approach by the Timorese government is by calling for the state of emergency. However, what I find very interesting in the context of Timor-Leste is that the speech by the uh, presidents actually include that uh, something along this line that, you know, we had to restrict your freedom, something like that. So, I mean, it doesn't happen in my country. I mean, as in, if you impose lockdown, it is a lockdown. They don't use the language of, uh, you know, your freedom of movements will be restricted. There will be some form of restrictions that are being imposed to you. So there's something very interesting. Yeah. So, but uh, however, when I zoom into uh, a little bit more deeper, the uh, Timor, let's say, can be a very interesting case studies when we want to debate the concept of democracy and human rights. Because when we talk about human rights, especially in the uh, time of the COVID, there's a lot of attention being moved to economic, social, cultural rights, especially economic rights. Before that, there's a lot of public perceptions that when we talk about human rights, it's civil political rights. Hence, it is also being used by a lot of Southeast Asian government to say that human rights is not our culture and many other things. Like Malaysia, Yinghui. Yes, exactly. So, but in uh, Timor-Leste, in most of my analysis, I wouldn't say they can be categorized as a full democratic countries because of the, especially on the developmental rights, uh, especially on the basic needs that are not being given to them. Uh, during the COVID-19, the emergency is being called, yes, it is quite successful, whereby the cases of COVID-19 is relatively low there because they close all the borders. Nobody can enter, nobody can get out from the country as well. But the state of uh, the developmental state of the citizens of the people there are being impacted as in to get a job, employment has been getting even more harder during that 
two years, in these two years of COVID-19 and many other things as well. So I think that strikes me quite a bit. Uh, while my writing at that time, so focusing more on the other 10 Southeast Asian countries, but uh, when I compare it with Timor-Leste, definitely it's it set situations where it can be drastically different in the countries like um, Timor-Leste. Yeah. Uh, you know, when, when you were when, when you were talking about the economic and, um, and social rights, Dina Zaman, uh, who's uh, your friend, right? Uh, I think um, she always made a point of saying that uh, perhaps the one of the major reasons why the Malaysian public tends to accept more authoritarian tendencies from government is that when they're looking at rights, they're really looking at stability of the economy, uh, income streams, and they've gotten so used to politics being the way they are in in Malaysia. So this is also happening in um, other countries in Timor-Leste. For instance, uh, with the election of, uh, well, with uh, Horta coming back, you think that's going to change? More focus on political rights? Well, I think in the in the uh, in Timor Leste, from my analysis, uh, the more concerning issues are the economic, social, and cultural rights rather than civil and political rights. They have been scoring really fairly very high, and also the recent uh, freedom of the press, uh, media freedom, is also ranked very high as well. So on this civil and political rights, their situations is quite different comparing to many other Southeast Asian countries, but. Uh, when we take out a little bit more other indexes and put it all and uh, map it together, when we look at their human development index, because human development index is talking about the well-being of the people, then their ranking is extremely low comparing to the democracy index and other civil and political rights index. So there is an imbalance there and um, uh, and huge gap when we talk about rights and also when we talk about understanding what is really democracy. From the human rights perspective, it has to be civil political rights have to be complemented together with economic, social, cultural rights. The basic needs of the people must be protected. So for Horta, as someone uh, who has won the Nobel Peace Prize and who have been in the international arena, I'm sure he is very familiar with the uh, international human rights uh, standards with some of it. And in fact, uh, just uh, recently, Timor-Leste has just ratified the International uh, Convention on the uh, People with uh, Disabilities, I, uh, CRPD. So that is, uh, their record is very high in terms of uh, ratifying the International Human Rights Treaty. So they have uh, ratified eight of them out of nine. So the only left is uh, enforced uh, disappearance. So on that part, the, the record, I must say, internationally seems to be quite good. But uh, when we go down on the ground, uh, looking more of the developmental uh, rights as in clean water, basic education, shelter, and those kind of uh, rights, it is still very far lacking behind. So those are the things that I think should be paid more attention in the context of Timor-Leste. To be qualified to be labeled as a democratic country in a more holistic way. But uh, so you you think they're not quite ready to join ASEAN? When he won the presidential elections just uh, recently, because he will be sworn in on twentieth uh, of May, but he already won the elections. He has actually mentioned, emphasized on that they are ready to become a member of the ASEAN member states. I think. To be ready or not to become an ASEAN member state is not an issue about whether a country is democratic or not. We have so many other un, um, undemocratic countries in the ASEAN. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. I used to write a little bit on uh, advocacy keys that why is Timor-Leste not being accepted in the ASEAN itself. I would think um, they have fulfilled everything that they need to do. In fact, on paper. So I would think the questions of whether democratic or not or whatsoever shouldn't be a judgment on that. 
if that is a judgment, of course, they are more than qualified comparing to other existing uh, members there. Because I think their dilemma is the introduction of the ASEAN Charter that whereby they started to impose some requirements. But as far as I know, they have already met all the minimum requirements. Then there have been uh, extensive field visits to Timor-Leste and uh, Ramos Hota recently has uh, voiced out that you know they are more than ready. Timor-Leste has been voiced out that they have been more than ready even way before to join the ASEAN. And I think the former foreign minister, he has actually conducted a tour around all the Southeast Asian countries. So far, all have voiced out their support to them, yet they are not there yet. But Timor has a very close relationship with Cambodian government. So Cambodian government uh, under Hun Sen has uh, shown very high support to their admission. So this year, we, we have Cambodia as the ASEAN chair. So we will see. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Well, anyway, just the fact that they have got a Nobel Peace Prize awardee, that makes only two awardees in ASEAN, right? Our uh, Maria Reza and President Porta. That should be enough to qualify them to it's so that they meet more than the minimum standards of ASEAN. But speaking about democratic institutions, I've always looked at a role of women as a gauge on whether a country is, is democratic or not, because women are like the canaries in the coal mines during the industrial age, right? Miners would bring canaries into the mines, and if the canaries sing, then the mine is safe. If the canaries are quiet, then they're dead and the mine is unsafe. So women are like canaries to gauge whether a democracy is strong or not. So it's really quite exciting that ASEAN is now initiating a move to have a regional plan of action to support women, peace and security, something that Salma is working on right now. And it's quite interesting that Timor-Leste is just one of three countries that has launched a national action plan for implementing women, peace, and security. So, um, Salma, this is pretty much in your neck of the woods. I wanted to ask that because there have been reports that uh, there's already a national action plan implementing the UN Security Council Resolution 1325 on women, peace, and security. Particularly, it's important because uh, during the pandemic, women are more adversely impacted by the restrictions imposed by member states in their respective jurisdictions. So my first question is, has the National Action Plan, at least for Timor-Leste, been implemented already, or is it still in the formulation stage? And second, I mean, in your honest assessment, what key issues should be addressed by the National Action Plan? Or is it, in fact, being addressed already? And actually, the, the foundational question first, Yinghui, are women active in the political process and decision-making in Timor-Leste, or are they, like, taking a background? Well, in comparison to many and most of the Southeast Asian countries, they are very active, in fact, in the small countries. So there are many many statistics that have uh, actually shown that, especially the involvement of the women in the parliament as well. So if we look a little bit on the statistics, even the recent presidential elections that I mentioned, 
So they had 16 presidential candidates. Wow. What's one six? And uh, <laughs> wow, that's a lot. Yes, that's a lot. It's a democratic <laughs> country, as they say, multi party system. So, four women. How many women? Yeah, four women out of 16 uh, presidential candidates. 16. And also, in the context of Timor, they have made it, they integrate the quota into the law, in the, into the electoral uh, law. So, uh, if I uh, remember it correctly, their electoral role, uh, law in uh, 2006 has mentioned that out uh, each political parties, when they put out their candidates, they must nominate one woman out of four candidates. Oh, that's pretty good. Back, You're way ahead of yeah, us. Back then, yeah. they are actually statistically, back then in 2006, and uh, they amended the law in uh, 2011. And they increased that in which out of two, nominate one woman out of three candidates. So from out of one out of four to one out of three. So that is uh, being introduced and uh, in the legislations. So with that, they uh, actually have around close to 40%, around 25 to 40% of the women's candidates in the uh, politics, in the parliaments, including. So they are doing quite fairly well statistically. But of course, uh, whenever we look at women in politics and quota, that's always a debate. Is quota sufficient? Should we have quota and many other things? So they have this uh, very big women's uh, NGO, Redefeto. Uh, Redefeto basically is an umbrella uh, organization for many other uh, women's rights NGO in Timor-Leste, whereby they advocate basically on the uh, women's rights. If I'm going to touch on a little bit on that national action plan on the WPS, that uh, were introduced for the period of 2016 to 2020. Well, first of all, I must mention that Timor-Leste is a country that uh, with a lot of plans. They also have strategic development plans. Okay. 20, yeah, 2016 to 2030. And their two constitutions also mentioned that the men and the women should have equal rights. So on that, on paper, on constitutions, on legislations, all the women's rights are being more or less being protected. Mm -hmm. But many uh, women's rights activists and also scholars saying that the statistic alone doesn't reflect the true picture on the ground. So, for instance, gender-based violence is uh, the largest crimes that are being reported to the police. And this is one of the largest human rights violations also by the uh, Provido Human Rights uh, and Justice as well, PDHJ. So uh, that is their form of the PDHJ is uh, similar with the CHRP in the Philippines. Yeah. So yeah, Human Rights Commission. So gender-based violence is always being uh, on the top of the human rights violations. And especially just now, Salma mentioned about during the COVID-19. So there have been some reports by the international NGOs that have been carried out to say that, you know, during COVID-19, the rights, women's rights violations has happened even more during that particular period as well. Yeah. Yeah. We also had that observation even in, even in the Philippines during the lockdown. I think this was a global phenomenon that the percentage increase really shut up during the pandemic when you're talking about gender-based violence, particularly in families. That's not surprising. But what's amazing is that they, well, I know that you said they have so many plans, but it's really quite interesting that they, in 2016, already came up with a national action plan for women, peace and security when activists in ASEAN were just trying to get the ASEAN leaders to come up with a statement supporting women, peace and security. But do you think that it's going to be useful Yinghui, uh, this uh, plan for women, peace and security in Timor-Leste or you have your doubts? Well, um, I must say I always have my skepticisms when it comes to the countries that are having a lot of plans and things like that. I mean, those are some things that we can do. But however, the positive side of it is rather than not having any. Because when you have the plan, the civil society groups can use that as a way to push the governments to do more rather than you have none of it being put in place. Although it can be sometimes being misused by the government to actually praise themselves at the international level. But I think it has uh, both ways to look at it. But I will see that as an opportunity for the civil society groups because they have said that what they're going to do. 
So at least we can use that to advocate it further on, on the plan. So on the uh, National Action Plan uh, 2016 and uh, 2020, on the resolutions uh, 13 to 25, they actually, in the other document, Strategic Development Plan, uh, 2016 to 2030, also mentioned a lot of things about sustainable developments that include the uh, women's uh, role as well. But uh, when we move on to uh, talking about the gender-based violence, the historical factor has to be put in place. Or even when we talk about all the plans that are being put in place in uh, Timor, because they went through their UN referendum. So the model that they use is liberal peace, liberal democracy, you know, looking at their constitutions and things like that. But it doesn't necessarily to be reflected on the ground because of the limitations that they have. They are considered as a poor countries. So they are not developed countries as yet. So there is a gap to fill. So the poverty is still extremely high. The poverty uh, line is around 42% of the people are still living under the extreme poverty. So there is a really an imbalance with that. So when we talk about all these uh, poverty issues and things, it impacts on the women, of course. But historically, looking at their violence uh, struggles as they went through two different forms of so-called colonialism, one is by the Portuguese for 300 years, and later on, the Indonesian occupation for another 24 years, which is the really violent one. So that impact on the role of the women. So it is a patriarchal society as well. However, there have been some activists and scholars been trying to uh, portray women in a different role rather than they are not victims. But they have been playing a lot of active roles during their independence struggle during the Indonesian occupation. Because although we see men fighting at the forefront, however, women are the fortress who have been uh, holding the families together and many other things. So they have been actively playing their roles in a different perspective as well. And there have been many of the women's activists that have been at the forefront. However, I think this is what is missing in uh, many women's rights uh, literatures that, you know, there's a um, heroes are being put as the a male, but the female are being neglected. So that is also quite a similar case back then in uh, Timor Leste. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that uh, you brought that up, that heroes are not just males, because that seems to be true for most of the areas of conflict in ASEAN as well, where people don't really see the roles that women have played in securing independence for their countries, because once uh, liberation comes, the males take over, and all of a sudden it's uh, patriarchy all over again, which is why it's really good that ASEAN is now supporting this move to have a regional plan of action. And we're now going to see a little bit more, shall we say, vocal support, if not actual support, for women's participation and promotion and support for their active role. But uh, Yingwu, you've been looking at issues like this for a while. Do you really think that having a regional plan of action in ASEAN in the short term, uh, will it make any positive changes in the situation of women, especially in conflict areas, or it's still going to take a long time? I think my comment will be the same where it's better to have a plan rather than uh, not having any. Yeah. So I know uh, civil society actors are very often divided into two different categories. Some, they think, why should we have more plans if there's no action? But I will be saying that I'm on the other categories to think that if they say they want to have a plan, might as well we do have a plan. Whether it works or not, but better than none. So that is the step and the baby steps. And I would think that will open up the door for more discourse and conversation. Because if without conversation, it doesn't go to the public as well. So it can't be just a civil society talking to each other or the government talking to each other. So at least that initiative can open up for a lot more awareness because it can be used by all the parties, all the stakeholders to actually hold the governments to be uh, accountable when it comes to the issues. Of when you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Talking about awareness, what is the level of awareness of women in Timor-Leste with respect to promotion or asserting their rights that may have been embodied in the various UN declarations and treaties? Or is it similar to like here in the Philippines as you go from urban to rural the level of awareness decreases and diminishes. Yeah, it's quite similar actually. And uh, but what's interesting is that from the academic approach, there have been a lot of writings that focus on the gender perspective in Timor because it is a very small country, you know. So the academic literatures can be quite limited, but there certainly be a group of very active scholars writing on Timor, looking at at it from the gender perspective. However, there is also a lot of uh, international organizations and the local organizations that are looking at the women's rights as well. For example, just now when we talk about the action plan, most of the plans are involved by the external organizations, not only the local. So that's the context of the post-conflict that they have. So there's a lot of involvement also from the external parties. So if we look at the uh, literacy rate, the women and the men are actually quite close. That is around the latest one by the Asia Foundation is about 60% of the uh, literacy rate of the women. And the men is uh, 69%. Yeah, yeah, that's quite good. But of course, we have to question on how they uh, do the benchmark for literacy rate. Yeah, so if you go for the rural areas, you will see a lot of women they stay back home. Because Timor doesn't have a lot of uh, employment opportunities. It is not same like the other Southeast Asian countries where you can just work at the private sector. So there's not much rooms to open. So even if you enter university, it does not guarantee you a job because it's so limited. So what happened is that a lot of men actually left the countries and go to the Europe to, to work because they are allowed to have a dual citizenship. They will get a Portuguese passport since they were colonized by Portugal, and then they will work in the UK, and then they send the money back. So that is quite common in the context of Timor-Leste. So when we talk about awareness, so awareness in terms of what I find very interesting in uh, Timor is that my focus is mainly on human rights. So in the country like Timor-Leste, when the first time that I learned about Timor-Leste, they actually do not have any human rights education. But they talk about peace education. That is where my recent publication on rethinking human rights and peace in post-independence Timor-Leste through the local perspective was uh, that the ideas came from there because they had this historical factor where they need to achieve peace. So there's a lot of conversation on peace, but they have not really put human rights and peace together. So it's not a human rights-based framework. Yes, for me, it has to be come together. Oh, yeah, they definitely are right. Yeah. So they have very prominent peace center for a long time by activist scholar. And uh, recently, they have got their human rights center, but very recently in just uh, recent years, for a few years, and uh, supported by the European Union. So when the uh, first time that I went there, I noticed that in their syllabus, they do not really teach about human rights that much. So human rights education are not really there, but they, they have a lot of uh, syllabus talking about their histories and things. So as uh, just uh, Amina mentioned, human rights-based approach has to be there. The framework is not the same. Human rights-based approach is not about just human rights. It's two different things. Because that will affect on how you draft your policies and many other 
and how you actually transform it and implement it as well. So that itself puts the awareness of uh, women's rights uh, rather low, especially in the rural areas, because what they see uh, many of the ordinary citizens are thinking that as long as there is no conflicts and war, which is also understandable looking at their histories, they have gone through the really, really bad time. So what they think is a peaceful time, that everything is good, is that there's no conflict. Yeah. Yeah, peace is the absence of conflict. Uh, that's about it. So, so tell me, Ying Hui, what is the attitude of the Timorese now about Indonesia? Actually, many are uh, some of the politicians are actually married to Indonesians and also including the, um, there's quite a big groups of the Indonesians there still in the uh, Timur Leste. But I must say, some might have reservations, but most they might not want to talk about that. So uh, working in that countries and visiting that countries uh, several times because I can't speak their local language that well, but I can speak Bahasa Indonesia. So I survive in that country with Bahasa Indonesia, but I can feel sometimes it can be uneasy for some people, especially those who have went through the Indonesian occupation. Because Timor is a very interesting country when it comes to language. They still have university that use Bahasa Indonesia. So they have their own uh, local language, but yet Portuguese is the official language together with their local language, Tetum. Uh, but Bahasa Indonesia and English are still being used for business and so forth. But in order for you to enter civil service, you must know how to speak well in Portuguese. Mm, Portuguese, huh? Yeah, Portuguese. For instance, if you want to uh, learn about law in the Faculty of Law by the uh, public university, UNTL, University of uh, National University of East Timor, you must speak Portuguese. Otherwise, you can't learn law. So, But it imposes a huge challenge because they have different generations. Because during the occupation of uh, uh, Portuguese, they can speak uh, many other languages, including Indonesia and uh, Indonesian language and many other things. But during the occupations of uh, Indonesia, they have changed entirely to Indonesian language. Bahasa. So no longer talking about Portuguese language. So during the Portuguese colonialism, they can uh, be well-versed in Portuguese. And then now the latest generations that uh, after they achieved their restoration of independence in 2002, the young people, they can't really speak in uh, Indonesian anymore, but the language is Portuguese. However, their parents might not be able to speak well in the Portuguese, depending on the generation they come from. So it is multilingual. So all these have been putting up quite a lot of challenge in creating awareness and also to ensure the rights being protected as well, because documents are being produced officially in the Portuguese, but not everybody can actually speak in uh, Portuguese. Have, have they come up with a, a proclamation for a national language? Yeah, they have their own local language, that is Tatum, but it is not fully developed that can be used very strongly, just like as much as developed like Tagalog or Bahasa Indonesia and many other things. It cannot so, be used for official and technical purposes. It's a big drawback. They use it for official too, but they will have two versions. They will also have the Portuguese language. Well, I guess it has a positive side. I mean, it allows you to find work in Europe because you speak Portuguese. So that's not so bad, yeah. The downside is they are being distanced from the Southeast Asia. That is true, yeah. Because English is not something that uh, many of them are able to actually understand. But Bahasa Indonesia, yes. But Bahasa Indonesia is only in Malaysia or, or Indonesia. So that restricts their employment opportunity in the region too. So in their parliament, they still, you know, they, uh, or among the civil society, there's still debates about the language issues as well. So many challenges, yet Timor Leste still has a lot going for it. A vibrant uh, civil society. It looks like women are politically active. So Salma, you sh we should be helping lobby for 
talking about less debt to be included in in NASA. What do you think? Well, they're way advanced uh, than us. I mean, they require from 25% women candidates in the poli- adopted by the political party to 30%. Whereas in our neck of the woods, we don't even have that. The quota for women candidates being uh, pushed for by political parties. And in fact, you have the women candidates that are adopted by political parties are mostly from uh, either relatives or Uh, related to former candidates or sitting uh, officials, yeah, daughters. Yeah, so they're 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 advanced than us. They're, they're the only country in Southeast Asia, right, that there's a quota system for women. That I'm not sure. It seems so. Yes, it it, it seems that they're yeah. being put in the electoral uh, law actually. So yeah, because in the law it says that the women must make up of uh, one third. I think they're the only ones. They're the only ones. Hooray! Hooray! For Timor Leste, so I'm 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 really looking forward to visiting Timor Leste, uh, Yinghui. But I have to improve my my Bahasa Portuguese. Portuguese, forget it. Portuguese is such a difficult language for us. Even though Philippines, one of the languages previews was uh, Spanish, but uh, Portuguese is different from Spanish. Portuguese. Is is, is very, very difficult. Yeah. Very yeah. different. Because uh, what's interesting is that when we uh, try to organize programs in uh, Timor Leste's about human rights education to the students and uh, many others, because uh, we we can't speak Portuguese. So we ask the participants to make a choice between English and Bahasa Indonesia. They actually pick Bahasa Indonesia. <laughs> I, I deliver my lectures in Bahasa Indonesia. With the mixtures of English, so that's quite interesting. Even for the uh, academia, the academic, uh, the lecturers, there, that's what they say. They think you know, perhaps Bahasa Indonesia is uh, they are more well versed than English. So yeah, that's a situation. Wow. There was a wonderful crash course on the current situation of Timor Leste. So thanks so much, Yinghui. But before we say our goodbyes, give us your fearless. Forecast: What's Timor Leste going to be like during the administration of President-elect Porta? Well, I think uh, I have not actually give a lot of thought about that yet, but I would think there will be quite a bit of emphasis and perhaps a little bit more work in terms of the foreign policies. He has voiced out just now as uh, Amina, you 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 mentioned about the abstentions in the UN and uh, he has called it for as a vote of uh, shame but I think capacity building perhaps is one of the focus that should be there in uh, Timor Leste it already has a very good foundations uh, to become a strong uh, democratic countries I mean it is after all it's a relatively new countries so I think Ramos Kota being there for a long time you would know very well the structures of the uh, countries But I would like to also trigger uh, everybody's mind about the debate in the context of Timor Leste when it comes to politicians. That is very similar with some other Southeast Asian countries. Is that they very often they have the debates between the revolutionary veterans politicians versus the younger politicians. So people are still voting for the big names. So they still continue to have this kind of debates, which is very similar with us. I mean, in Malaysia, it's the same. Perhaps in uh, uh, Philippines, also in Indonesia, yes. Oh, very much, very much the same. In fact, uh, if in their elections the popular names are political names, I might even say that it's better because in the Philippines, when you're talking about national elections, popularity is popularity. And you don't always have to have a political background. You can be a movie star, uh, <laughs> a radio talk host. But if you're popular, you're going to get elected. So that's also the same in uh, Timor Leste. And they even divide the political veterans into two categories. That is, those who fight uh, from the, in the jungle and those who fight outside of the countries. Horta belongs to those who fight outside of the countries. So there are some people who are more favor of those who fight in the jungle because they think 
they uh, deserve a lot more appreciation because they've been fighting for their independence. So that kind of debate is still ongoing. So there's a lot of focus and a lot of budget being put towards the veterans there. That continue to be quite a debate. This has been really quite fascinating, Salma. You should invite uh, yeah. Ying to your next focus group discussion. Yes, I, I will. In fact, not only for our focus group discussions, we should, I think I would like to have her speak before law students in the College of Law. The College of right? Law. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Because they look at the developments in uh, Timor Leste, especially see, about the quota. Yes, <laughs> so thank you so very much, Ying Hui, for joining us. And uh, Salma and I are looking forward to seeing you face to face. And maybe Salma, you could have the university invite Ying Hui to come and talk and we can take her around Muslim Mindanao. What do you say, Salma? Yes, in fact, you took the idea right from my I was about to say that because we have a number of women members of parliament in the autonomous region. They could get ideas and tips from Yinghui how to come up with a substantive law that would require a quota in the political parties in the autonomous region. Yeah. What do you think about that? Only if Yinghui is game to do it. But I mean, if you could manage in uh, Timor Leste, uh, I think you'll, you'll manage in the Philippines. <laughs> sure. I stayed in the Philippines for six months, actually, for many, many years ago. Yeah. Oh, see you there. Me too. Likewise. Thank you very much. So we, we look forward to seeing you face to face. Thank you very much for having me. So thank you, Yinghui, and to all of our listeners. Uh, thanks for joining us. This has been a wonderful talk and a wonderful introduction to the country known as Timor Leste, an interesting country which has a law that has a quota system that allows women uh, participation, better participation in the uh, political process. So this is Amina Rasul from the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy saying stay safe and uh, we're hoping that the new government of the Philippines will be just as supportive of women and civil society as President Ramos Horta, the president-elect of Timor Leste. Salma? Oh, thank you for being for gracing our podcast. And to all our listeners, uh, stay tuned for our future episodes. And if you have any ideas, especially in the area of women, peace, and security, do share in your social media posts, uh, hashtag WPSASEAN, and it would surely come back to us. So thank you for listening and looking forward to at least more interesting discussions in our future podcasts. Bye! She Talks Peace is brought to you in partnership with Podcast Network Asia and Podmetrics, the easiest way to monetize your podcast. For more information, check out their website at podcastnetwork.asia and podmetrics.co. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia, the hosts of the program, or other programs of the network. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.